This stuff is preventable. People do not have to be scarred for the rest of their life because of the violence that gets perpetrated. He said, I can tell you right now, sitting in my church, there are tons of survivors and they're perpetrators. But the vast majority of police officers wanted to do the right thing. They just didn't understand it. And now, The Safety Zone. Welcome, folks, to a new episode of The Safety Zone. This is Melinda Ron, and I'm here, of course, with Mike McCarty, CEO of Safe Hiring Solutions and Safe Ministry Solutions. And Mike, it's good to see you in the Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you as well. We're going to start out just following the headlines in this past month. We've had, of course, the major trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, of course, who worked with Jeffrey Epstein, and she was found guilty, five of the six counts. And wanted to just bring that up because a lot of Christian leaders have responded wonderfully. Ed Stetzer, I know, who heads up the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, not only applauded it, but also said it also gives credence that we need to listen to the voices of victims, of survivors. And Beth Moore did so as well, and and many other Christian leaders. And so we wanted to kind of dive into that, because if anybody followed that trial, the defense attorneys were, I would say, brutal, from my perspective, towards the survivors, and just trying to obliterate any sort of dignity they had, but just that of their testimony was even being true. So we went to talk about that because we've seen this time and again with not believing the victims and the survivors. And just in another case that, of course, most of the world had, had followed with the Gabby Petito and Brian Laundry case of domestic violence, there's another investigation going on with the local police that had originally been called in when they were camping and questioning what went wrong there, what they missed. And again, not really believing seemingly the victim. And so Mike, you're the, especially the expert in in violence prevention, but you certainly have seen this and gone around many times in terms of domestic violence and the program you developed, but also on sexual abuse prevention. Just seeing this issue, what is it that we just keep backing up into and not believing these victims or these the survivors. Yeah, that's an ongoing battle. I started with the, we started the domestic violence unit in Nashville, Tennessee, in 1994, and I feel like we've been saying these same things, and people have been carrying that torch a lot longer than I had when when I started in 1994. But when you look at these cases, and you talked about the Maxwell case because it's very topical, it's in the news right now. But if you want to talk about classic predatory targeting behavior, just watch the Netflix series, right? And and I can break it down for, for you in 30 seconds to a minute right here. Look at the, the, the survivors, the victims that they targeted in this case. They were marginalized. You're talking about the powerful, the predators, Mm -hmm. and you're talking about powerless. And we talk about that a lot. I mean, you really take their power, but you're talking about very specifically, very young girls that were targeted and targeted because they probably wouldn't be believed, right? Like their families could potentially at times have been dysfunctional. And so they're not 
the type of person that society's going to believe. And there was a study, oh my gosh, 20 years ago, and some statistics that I used just talking about not only reporting, because mm-hmm. the reporting rates of sexual abuse are extraordinarily low. Almost like nobody will report this. But once they report, you would expect at that point, if we're a caring society, that the prosecution rates would be good. Mm-hmm. But they're awful. And they're awful because what we noticed in this research found 20 years ago, they were much more likely to prosecute a case Really, it came down to if the victim was clean, moral, upstanding, good family, had everything going for them, right? Like it was a college entrance exam, then they were much more likely to offer this case for prosecution if there was anything in this person's background that could cause them, maybe they had been promiscuous Mm -hmm. or anything, alcohol, drugs, just all of these things as they factored in, less likely to prosecute. So we have a horrible track record in the United States of holding people accountable that perpetrate this. But the worst part of it is we turn it back on the survivors And we don't believe them, but we're also telling other survivors, keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. Don't open your mouth. Mm. You can one sense understand in the systematic way how that works, but the moral way and in any other way, it doesn't make sense. But how do you, how do we combat that? Because we're not only seeing that in the secular world, we're seeing this in the Christian world. A lot. I read an article yesterday, a large camp, and they were talking about the author's why you haven't heard so much about this particular event that they're writing about in this particular Christian organization. But it was in their way they write that it's because of this legal use of confidentiality agreements and non-disclosures. And so legal tools that have been used where victims, survivors can't say anything now because they entered into these. So we not only silence victims by just society not understanding anything about these dynamics, and they don't understand the dynamics of the offenders, but then we also see once it gets into the court system that we can use legal means by which to silence the victims further. And so it's this whole light and darkness, right? You want to get real philosophical here. It's really simple. Bad things happen in the dark. Why did my parents always make sure I was home by midnight? I had these strict rules. My dad was a state police officer. My mom was a victim advocate. They wanted me home when it was dark because they knew things that weren't good happen in the dark. And you start shining light on things. Yes. Ooh. uh, Yes. Things happen. And how do we, in saying that, in the light, dark, and and I'm going to go, of course, because both based on our faith as believers, I would, how do we address this in the church? And I know we're, we're certainly focusing on prevention, which is vital and, and teaching, teaching the church, teaching leaders what it means to prevent sexual abuse cases in the church with our program with the learning zone and various aspects that we have educational wise. But is there a mentality there that we need to address as well? Or is there is it a call to Christian leaders, good pastors and people that really understand this case that kind of a clarion call for a better lack of words that we need to start really 
changing our perspectives on things or looking at things differently? Yes, all of the above. It's really education, right? And so if we look at how poorly the criminal justice system has responded for decades to sexual abuse and domestic violence and these cultural myths that have played into that, that police and prosecutors and judges bring to their thinking that leads to poor investigations, low prosecution. We've been combating that for 20 some years now, going on 30 years, I hate to admit, but we shouldn't think that the church wouldn't have these same cultural yeah. beliefs. We're, we're a melting pot of people, right? Yes. That come from yes. everywhere. So we're bringing those same kind of cultural belief systems into the church. And in the most part, this isn't something when you go through seminary or you're not getting trained on this, but the reality is every single church or organization in the United States has survivors. Yes of domestic violence and sexual abuse setting in their church every single week. Guarantee you. I speak to police officers. I, I For 20 years, I trained all new police officers in the state of Indiana. Each class, I would have anywhere from 150 to 200 new police officers, men and women. And one of the first things I would say before we started the training on domestic violence, I have survivors sitting in this classroom. And I have perpetrators sitting in this classroom, mm. no doubt about mm. it, statistically 100% accurate statement. And I did that more to let the survivors know, I understand, mm -hmm. but I also wanted any perpetrator sitting there to know, I also understand you and your motivations and why you might be sitting in a police recruit school. So as a church, I think foundationally, we just... We've got to seek help, which is understanding, because it is a paradigm shift from everything that's normal. Even as a police officer training other police officers, I would tell them, when you walk into a home where there's domestic violence or sexual abuse, and you have you were not raised this way, you're not a survivor, you don't understand this, you better check your view of normal at the door. Mm -hmm. Because what you think is normal and what's about to happen when you talk to survivors they're going to say things you can't even imagine. Why is she defending him? She's not doing it because she doesn't want anything to happen to him. What she really wants in domestic violence is for him to stop. Right. That it never happens again. But she may turn on you. She may lie for him. There's so many dynamics that play out in that house. Too often, what I, as a young officer, you look at that and you go, oh, if she doesn't care, I don't care. Your problem, not mine. I'll see you later. Yeah. I'm out of here. We didn't understand what they were doing. We didn't understand why when they were standing there together and I would ask a survivor a question, she couldn't answer it. Well, why is she not talking to me? Why won't she say anything? Well, she can't. Exactly. She's going to get her head chopped exactly. off as soon as I leave. Yep. So I say those kind of drastic examples, but the church is the same place, I think, that police were at. 25 years ago. Yes. We had to we had to walk it backwards and say we're going to start with a basic understanding and then we're going to move forward. If you refuse to do what is right once we train you, then we got a problem with you. Right. But the vast majority of police officers wanted to do the right thing. They just didn't understand it.
they it was just so frustrating, but they were dealing with it all the time. And I think the church oftentimes they know it's there, but it's easy to ignore it because I really don't know what to say. Right. And without training, sometimes I do the wrong thing. Like, I'm going to treat it like marriage counseling. I'm going to bring you both in and sit down. Ooh, no. Right. Shouldn't happen. Exactly. So it's just, it starts with training and education. Yes. It's so interesting because everything you just said, which I know, of course, in your expertise, mirrors a conversation I had with a Christian psychologist, actually, therapist for sexual abuse survivors. And he had suffered sexual abuse um, within his own family when he was young. And he said the exact same thing you said. He said, I can tell you right now, sitting in my church, there are tons of survivors and they're perpetrators. And you know, just mirrored what you were saying from, from his perspective, which is in counseling and as a survivor. But it, the same thing, just the lack of understanding of how to deal with domestic violence and with sexual abuse. And I think in this era, we've come to a point where it's not as you've said so many times, Mike, you have so many inbox news snippets coming in continually. This isn't a one-off here and there, and it's, oh, it's just, it's rare, it's just once in a while. No, it's happening continually in in the church and in, if I can say, specifically in, in the evangelical church. And for many years, we we watched what happened in the Catholic church, and we have to understand it's happening in our churches now. And I think from my heart, I, you want to see an urgency, you know, to to deal with this. And I know there's been certain leaders speaking out, but you've shared your heart really well. But do you see this as an urgency for pastors that might be listening? And, and when I say this, God bless them. Pastors have a ton, a ton of things on their plate. And with the pandemic, pastors are really overwhelmed. And and I. I think we all get that. Just in sharing your heart, Mike, on this issue, obviously we want people to be safe. We want people to get the healing they need. And, and if any place we want people to be is at church to get that greater healing, right? But what would be your message to church leaders right now? Yeah, it definitely is a sense of urgency. You just have this collision course of so many things and you just keep thinking, right? Like we're gonna we're coming out of COVID, right? And then Somebody pops off on media and says, oh, no, 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 now we're not. Who do you believe? But you've got people dealing with, we've seen escalation and thoughts of suicide and, and suicidal behavior mm-hmm. and domestic violence has absolutely skyrocketed during COVID. Mm-hmm. And well, think about it, more people at home and stress. And now we've got inflation and everything costs more and all these things. And when you look at domestic violence in particular, the financial aspects, somebody who has belief systems that supports violence, like you don't take me and put me in a bad financial position. My first reaction is not to abuse my spouse. But if I am an abuser and now it starts to get compounded by these other mental health issues and emotionally, I feel like, where's the world going? It's over. Now my finances, all of these are big precipitators and why we've seen homicide rates and domestic violence skyrocket over the last 18 months. So urgent? Yeah, it's urgent. I get it. There's so many urgencies right now that how do you pick which one? But 
the, the whole feeling of safety and security is an urgent issue right yes. now. This last 12 yes. months, you know, I read an article yesterday, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but it was talking about some progressive policies in a few cities from the prosecutors. One, half their staffs are quitting because they're more interested in prosecuting somebody not wearing a mask than violent crime. And I read in Philadelphia that the the number of homicides, I believe it was 2019, was like 150, something like that. And it was 560 last year. You've almost quadrupled the number of people being killed in one city in an 18-month period. So the urgency is real when it Mm -hmm. comes to domestic violence in particular, because we have very strong quantifiable data. And what is so alarming is there's been so much work done where it was declining for decades. And now all of a sudden it is a different trajectory. And so, yeah, the sense of urgency is real. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mike, we we always want to end on a hopeful note, not to to sound New Year and Dower, but but at the same time, I think the hope always comes in that we can prevent this. That's to me the the sadness of it is if we would just take the time and prioritize preventing sexual abuse, at least within our churches. We can do that. And I just want to again, I guess, stress our program, the learning zone. Of course, there's other programs out there, but just the whole issue of prevention, Mike, which of course has been your heart and your passion for 30 years, right? And even and as a believer with the church, we don't need to be in this position. I think that's the key. And it absolutely is a key. And I absolutely never want to end on a Debbie Downer note. That's not me. I'm a problem solver. Exactly. The reality is I probably can get a little angered over the lack of urgency and, mm-hmm. and allowing something to happen that is 100% preventable. Mm-hmm. We proved in Nashville in 1994 that when you start believing victims, when you start listening to survivors, when you, you take them at their word and you intervene we reduced the domestic murder rate by 50% first year. But I told a group of pastors in Nashville way back then, I said, they need to get involved with you because I'm getting it here at the criminal justice level. By the time I get it, it is aggravated. It has grown. It's metastasized. It's really big. But if we can get the church involved yes. even earlier because the victim survivor trusts you much more than he or she is going to trust me, then I said, we can stop this. Yes. And that's where we are today. And this is preventable. This stuff is preventable. People do not have to be scarred for the rest of their life because of the violence that gets perpetrated. So that is the positive note here. We have to start with a culture of prevention. There's all kinds of training out there, and they're going to focus on these things and red flags, and that is all good stuff. But you got to start at first base, and that is you have to develop a culture of prevention. Yes, People have to believe it's preventable or none of the other things I'm going to teach you will ever matter. Yes. And I would just add in, in bringing it into an even more encouraging aspect, but also just a reminder that as believers, and I'm speaking, of course, to the church, to fellow Christians and to pastors, besides 
rescued is saving people, which is of utmost importance. They made in the image of God. We need to care about that. But we're also talking about the witness of Christ. And we've seen oftentimes when people have been abused in church, it, it has a major effect on their faith. And just being able to look at it from this perspective as well, and to understand that this culture of prevention, we're not only preventing, like you said, people's lives from being scarred, we're also preventing their faith, the, the witness of Christ from being injured in their heart. And that is very much, very much a foundational urgency in the church right now, wouldn't you say? Absolutely would agree. You're talking about a person's eternity. And I have spoken to countless people over the years that have walked away because of abuse. Yes. And they're still away. Yeah. They're not coming back. Man, that is an eternal decision that's being made because of something that happened to them inside the church and the perception that they were not cared for or believed. Yes. Yes. Again, we, we love our pastors. In the majority of churches, they they have the right heart. They don't have necessarily always the right tools. So in that context, we just really, really pray and really encourage our fellow believers and leaders that might be listening to this to to join us in that clarion call of prevention and starting to address this with the boldness of our faith and really intervene and save lives, not only physically, but spiritually as well. So Mike, once again, thank you for such an important podcast. And we encourage people to go to the website, www.safehiringsolutions.com. And there are many ways that you can reach out. Safe Ministry Solutions is on there as well. More than happy more than happy to talk to pastors, to show them what that model of prevention looks like and really just come alongside them and help them to do this so that they aren't overwhelmed, but at the same time can really get a program going. Absolutely. Thanks again, Mike. Thank you, Melinda. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Ministry Solutions, which offers a 360 security solution that keeps your church, your congregation, and your ministry safe.